Welcome to Reformed in Public. We continue the reading of The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. This work is considered public domain. Please visit our show notes page at anchor.fm forward slash reformed in public. 4. Contentment is the gracious frame of the heart. Indeed, in contentment there is a compound of all graces. If the contentment is spiritual, if it is truly Christian, there is, I say, a compound of a great many precious ingredients. So it is in this grace of contentment, which we shall say more of in unfolding its excellence. But now the gracious frame of spirit is in opposition to three things. One, in opposition to the natural quietness of many men and women. Some are so constituted by nature that they are more still and quiet. Others are of a violent and hot constitution, and they are more impatient. Two, in opposition to a sturdy resolution. Some men, through the strength of a sturdy resolution, do not seem to be troubled, come what may. So, they are not disquieted as much as others. 3. By way of distinction from the strength of natural, though unsanctified, reason, which may quiet the heart in some degree, but now I say that a gracious frame of spirit is not merely a stillness of the body which comes from its natural constitution and temper, nor a sturdy resolution, nor merely through the strength of reason. You will ask, in what way is the grace of contentment distinguished from all these? More will be spoken of this when we come to show the mystery of contentment and the lessons to be learned. But now we may speak a little by way of distinction from the natural quietness of spirit and such bodily constitution that you seldom find them disquieted. Now, mark these people, and you will see that they are likewise of a very dull spirit in any good matter. They have no quickness or liveliness of spirit in such matters either. But where contentment of heart springs from grace, the heart is very quick and lively in the service of God. Ye, the more any gracious heart can bring itself to be in a contented disposition, the more fit it is for any service of God. And just as a contented heart is very active and busy in the work of God, so he is very active and busy in sanctifying God's name in the affliction that befalls him. The difference is very clear. The one whose disposition is quiet is not disquieted as others are, but neither does he show any activeness of spirit to sanctify the name of God in his affliction. But, on the other hand, he whose contentment is of grace is not disquieted, and keeps his heart quiet with regard to vexation and trouble, and at the same time is not dull or heavy, but very active in sanctifying God's name in the affliction that he is experiencing. For if a man is to be free from discontent and worry, 
It is not enough merely not to murmur, but you must be active in sanctifying God's name in the affliction. Indeed, this will distinguish it from a sturdy resolution not to be troubled. Though you have a sturdy resolution that you will not be troubled, do you make it a matter of conscience to sanctify sanctify God's name in your affliction? And is this where your resolution comes from? That is the main thing that brings quietness of heart and helps against discontent in a gracious heart. I say the desire and care your soul has to sanctify God's name in an affliction is what quietens the soul, and this is what others lack. A quietness which comes from from reason only does not do this either. It is sad of it is said of Socrates that though he were only a heathen, he would never so much as change his countenance whatever befell him, and he got this power over his spirit merely by the strength of reason and morality. But gracious contentment comes from principles beyond the strength of reason. I cannot develop that until we come to unfold the mystery of spiritual contentment. I will give you just one mark of the difference between a man or woman who is content in a natural way and one who is contention in and one who is content in a spiritual way. Those who are content in a natural way overcome themselves when outward afflictions befall them and are content. They are just as content when they commit sin against God, when they have outward crosses, or when God is dishonored. It is all one to them, whether they themselves are crossed, or whether God is crossed. But a gracious heart that is contented with its own affliction will rise up strongly when God is dishonored. 5. The fifth characteristic is contentment is freely submitting to and taking pleasure in God's disposal. It is a free work of the Spirit. There are four things to be explained in this freedom of spirit, that the heart is readily brought over. When someone does a thing freely, he does not need a lot of moving to get him to do it. Many men and women, when afflictions are heavy upon them, may be brought to a state of contentment with great ado. At last, perhaps, they may be brought to quiet their hearts in their affliction, but only with a great deal of trouble, and not at all freely. If I desire a thing of someone else, and I get it with much ado, and a great deal of trouble, there is no freedom of spirit here. When a man is free, in a thing, only mention it, and immediately he does it. So, if you have learned this art of contentment, you will not only be content and quiet your hearts after a great ado, but as soon as you come to see that it is the hand of God, your heart acts readily and closes at once. Two, it is freely that is not by constraint, not as we say, patience by force. Thus, many will say that you must be content, that this is the hand of God and you cannot help it.
Oh, but this is too low an expression for Christians. Yet, when Christians come to visit one another, they say, friend or neighbor, you must be content. Must be content is too low for a Christian. No, it should be, readily and freely, I will be content. It is suitable to my heart to yield to God and to be content. I find it a thing that comes naturally that my soul should be content. O oh, you should answer your friends, so who come and tell you that you must be content. No, I am willing to yield to God, and I am freely content. That is the second point about freedom of spirit. Now, a free act comes in a rational manner. That is, freedom. It does not come through ignorance, because I know of no better condition, or because I do not know why my affliction is, but it comes through a sanctified judgment. That is why no creature but a rational creature can do an act of freedom. Liberty of action is only in rational creatures, and comes from hence, for that is only freedom that is done in a rational way. Natural freedom is when I, by my judgment, see what is to be done, understand the thing, and my judgment agrees with what I understand. That is done freely. But if a man does something not understanding what he is doing, he cannot be said to do it freely. Suppose a child is, was born in prison and never went outside of it. He is content. But why? Because he never knew anything better. His being content is not a free act. But for men and women who know better, who know that the condition they are in is an afflicted and sad condition, and still by a sanctified judgment can bring their hearts to contentment, this is freedom. 3. This freedom is in opposition to mere stupidity. A man or woman may be contented merely from lack of sense. This is not free, any more than a man who is paralyzed in a deadly way and does not feel it when you nip him is patient freely. But if someone should have their flesh pinched and feel it, and yet, for all that can control themselves, and do it freely, that is another matter. So it is here. Many are contented out of mere stupidity. They have a dead paralysis upon them. But a gracious heart has sense enough, and yet is contented, and is, and therefore is free. 6. Contentment is freely submitting to and taking pleasure in God's disposal. Submitting to God's disposal. What is that? The word submit signifies nothing else but to send under. Thus, in one who is discontented, the heart will be unruly and would even get above God so far as discontent prevails. But now comes the gracious but now comes the grace of contentment, and sends it under. For to submit is to send under a thing. Now, when the soul comes to see its own unruliness, 
Is the hand of God bringing an affliction, and yet my heart is troubled and discontented? What, it says, will you be above God? Is this not God's hand, and must your will be regarded more than God's? O under, under, get you under. O soul, keep under, keep low, keep under God's feet. You are under God's feet, and keep under his feet. Keep under the authority of God, the majesty of God, the sovereignty of God, the power that God has over you. To keep under, that is to submit. The soul can submit to God at the time when it can send itself under the power and authority and sovereignty and dominion that God has over it. That is the sixth point, but even that is not enough. You have not attained this grace of contentment unless the next point is true of you. 7. Contentment is taking pleasure in God's disposal. This is so when I am well pleased in what God does, in so far as I can see God in it, though, as I said, I may be sensible of the affliction, and may desire that God, in his due time, would remove it, and may use means to remove it. Yet I am well pleased in so far as God's hand is in it. To be well pleased with God's hand is a higher degree than the previous one. It comes from this. Not only do I see that I should be content in this affliction, but I see that there is good in it. I find there is honey in this rock, and so I do not only say I must or I will submit to God's hand. No, the hand of God is good. It is good that I am afflicted. To acknowledge that it is just that I am afflicted is possible in one who is not truly contented. I may be convinced that God deals justly in this matter. He is righteous and just, and it is right that I should submit to what he has done. Oh, the Lord has done righteously in all ways, but that is not enough. You must say, Good is the hand of the Lord. It was the expression of old Eli. Good is the hand of the Lord. When it was a sore and hard word, it was a word that threatened very grievous things to Eli and his house. And yet Eli says, Good is the word of the Lord. Perhaps some of you may say, like David, It is good that I was afflicted. But you must come to this. It is good that I am afflicted. Not just good when you see the good fruit that it, the good fruit it has wrought, but to say when you are afflicted, it is good that I am afflicted, whatever the affliction, yet through the mercy of God, mine is a good condition. It is indeed the top and the height of this art of contentment to come to this pitch and to be able to say, well, my condition and afflictions are so and so and very grievous and sore, yet through God's mercy, I am in a good condition, and the hand of God is good upon me, notwithstanding. I should have given you several scriptures about this, but I will give you one or two which are very striking. You will think it is a hard lesson 
to come so far as not only to be quiet, but to take pleasure in affliction. In the house of the righteous is much treasure, but in the revenues of the wicked is trouble. Proverbs 15.6 Here is a scripture to show that a gracious heart has cause to say that it is in a good condition, whatever it is. In the house of the righteous is much treasure. His house, what house? It may be a poor cottage, and perhaps he has scarcely a stool to sit on. Perhaps he is forced to sit on a stump of wood, or part of a block instead of a stool, or perhaps he has scarcely a bed to lie on, or a dish to eat in. Yet the Holy Ghost says, In the house of the righteous is much treasure. Let the righteous man be the poorest man in the world. It may be that someone has come and taken all the goods from out of his house for debt. Perhaps his house is plundered and all is gone, yet still in the house of the righteous is much treasure. The righteous man can never be made so poor to have his house so rifled and spoiled, but there will remain much treasure within. If he has but a dish or a spoon or anything in the world in his house, there will be much treasure so long as he is there. There is the presence of God and the blessing of God upon him, and therein is much treasure. But in the revenues of the wicked there is trouble. There is more treasure in the pocket. There is more treasure in the poorest body's house, if he is godly, than in the house of the greatest man in the world, who has his fine hangings and finely wrought beds and chairs and couches and cupboards, of plate and the like. Whatever he has, he has not so much treasure in it as there is in the house of the poorest righteous soul. It is no marvel, therefore, that Paul was content for a verse or two after my text you read, but I have all and abound. I am full. Philippians 4.18 I have all? Alas, poor man, what did Paul have that I... What did Paul have that could make him say he had all? Where was there... Even where was there ever a man more afflicted than Paul was? Many times he had not tatters to hang on about his body to cover his nakedness. He had no bread to eat. He was often in nakedness and put in the stocks and whipped and cruelly used. Yet I have all, says Paul, for all that. Yes, you will find it in Second Corinthians. He professes there that he did not he sorry he professes there that he did possess all things as sorrowful yet always rejoicing as poor yet making many rich as having nothing yet possessing all things second corinthians 6:10 mark what he says it is as having nothing but it is possessing all things he does not say as possessing all things but possessing all things i have very little in the world he says but yet possessing all things so you see that a christian has cause to take pleasure in god's hand whatever his hand may be eight 
The eighth thing in contentment is submitting and taking pleasure in God's disposal. That is to say, the soul that has learned this lesson of contentment looks up to God in all things. He does not look down at the instruments and means, so as to say that such a man did it, that it was the unreasonable of such the unreasonableness of such and such instruments, and similar barbarous usage by such and such, but he looks up to God. A contented heart look a contented heart looks to God's disposal, and submits to God's disposal. That is, he sees the wisdom of God in everything. In his submission, he sees his sovereignty. But what makes him take pleasure in God's wisdom? The Lord knows how to order things better than I. The Lord sees further than I do. I only see things at present, but the Lord sees a great while from now. And how do I know but that had it not been for this affliction, I should have been undone. I know that the love of God may as well stand with an an afflicted condition as with a prosperous condition. There are reasonings of this kind in a contented spirit, submitting to the disposal of God. 9. The last thing is, this is in every condition. Now we shall enlarge on this a little. 1. Submitting to God in whatever affliction befalls us, as to the kind of affliction. 2. As to the time and continuance of the affliction. 3. As to the variety and changes of affliction, whatever they are, yet there must be a submission to God's disposal in every condition. As to the kind of affliction, many men and women will in general say that they must submit to God in affliction. I suppose that if you were to go now from one end of this congregation to the other and speak thus to every soul, would you not submit to God's disposal in whatever condition he might place you? You would say, God forbid that it should be otherwise. But we have a saying, there is a great deal of deceit in general statements. In general, you would submit to anything. But what if it is in this or that particular case which crosses you most? Then, anything but that. We are usually apt to think that any condition is better than that condition in which God has placed us. Now, this is not contentment. It should be not only to any condition in general, but for the kind of affliction including that which most crosses you. God, it may be, strikes you in your child. Oh, if it had been in my possessions, you say, I would be content. Perhaps he strikes you in your marriage. Oh, you say, I would rather have been stricken in my health. And if he had struck you in your health, oh then, if it had been in my trading, I would not have cared. But we must not be our own carvers. Whatever particular afflictions God may place us in, we must be content in them. 2. 
there must be a submission to God in every affliction, as to the time and continuance of the affliction. Perhaps I could submit and be content, says someone, but this affliction has been on me a long time, three months, a year, many years, and I do not know how to yield and submit to it. My patience is worn out and broken. I may even be a spiritual affliction. It may even be a spiritual affliction. You could su- submit to God, you say, in any outward affliction, but not in a soul affliction. Or if it were the withdrawing of God's face, yet if this had been but for a little time I could submit, but to seek God for so long and still he does not appear, oh how shall I bear this? We must not be our own disposers for the time of deliverance, any more than for the kind and way of deliverance. I will give you a scripture or two about this, that we are to submit to God for the time as well as the kind of affliction. See the latter end of the first chapter of Ezekiel. When I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of one that spake. The prophet was cast down upon his face, but how... Long must he lie upon his face. And he said unto me, Son of man, stand upon thy feet, and I will speak unto thee. And the Spirit entered into me, when he spake unto me, and set me upon my feet. Ezekiel was cast down upon his face, and there he must lie, till God should bid him to stand up. Ye, and not only so, but till God's Spirit came into him and enabled him to stand up. So when God cast us down, we must be content to lie till God bids us stand up, and God's Spirit enters into us to enable us to stand up. You know how Noah was put into the ark, certainly. He knew there was much affliction in the ark with all kinds of creatures shut up with him for twelve months together. It was a mighty thing, yet God having shut him up, even though the waters were assuaged, Noah was not to come out of the ark till God bid him. So, though we be shut up in great affliction, and we may think of this and that, and the other means to come out of that affliction, yet... Till God opens the door, we should be willing to stay. God has put us in, and God will bring us out. So we read in the Acts of Paul, when they had shut him in prison, and would have sent for him out. No, says Paul, they shut us in, let them come and fetch us out. So, in a holy, gracious way, should a soul say, Well, this affliction that I am brought into is by the hand of God, and I am content to be here till God brings me out himself. 
God requires it at our hands, that we should not be willing to come out till he comes and fetches us out. In Joshua 4.10, there is a remarkable story that may serve our purpose well, our purpose very well. We read of the priest that they bore the ark and stood in the midst of Jordan. You know, when the children of Israel went into the land of Canaan, they went through the river Jordan. Now, to go through the river Jordan was a very dangerous thing, but God had told them to go. They might have been afraid of the water coming in upon them, but mark it as, but mark it is said, The priest that bare the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan till everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to speak unto the people according to all that Moses commanded Joshua. And the people hasted and passed over, and it came to pass when all the people were clean passed over, that the ark of the Lord passed over, and the priest in the presence of the people. Now it was God's disposal that all the people should pass over first, that they should be safe on land, but the priest must stand still till all the people had passed over, and then they must have leave to go. But they must stay till God would have them to go, stay in all that danger, for certainly to reason and sense there was a great deal of danger in staying. For the text says that the people hasted over, but the priest they must stay till the people have gone. Stay till God calls them out from that place of danger. And so many times it proves the case that God is pleased to to dispose of things so that his ministers must stay longer in danger than the people, and likewise magistrates and those in public places, which should make people to be satisfied and contented with a lower position into which God has put them. Though your position is low, yet you are not in the same danger as those who are in a higher position. God calls those in public positions to stand longer in the gap and place of danger than other people. But we must be content to stay even in Jordan till the Lord shall be pleased to call us out. 3. And then, for the variety of our condition, we must be content with the particular affliction and the time and all the circumstances about the affliction, for sometimes the circumstances are greater afflictions than the afflictions themselves, and for the variety. God may exercise with us God may exercise us with various afflictions, one after another, as has been very noticeable even of late that many who have been plundered and come away afterwards have fallen sick and died they have fled for their lives and afterwards the plague has come among them and if not that affliction it may be some other it is very rarely that one affliction comes alone commonly afflictions are not single things but they come one upon the neck 
of another. God may strike one man in his possessions, then in his body, then in his name, wife, child, or dear friend, and so it comes in a variety of ways. It is the way of God ordinarily. You may find it by experience that one affliction seldom comes alone. Now, this is hard when one affliction follows after another, when there is a variety of afflictions, when there is a mighty change in one's condition up and down, this way and that, there indeed is the trial of a Christian. Now, there must be submission to God's disposal in them. I remember it was said even of Cato, who was a heathen, that no man saw him to be changed, though he lived in a time when the commonwealth was so often changed, yet it is said of him he was the same still, though his condition was changed, and he passed through a variety of conditions. Oh, that the same could be said of many Christians, that though their circumstances are changed, yet that nobody could see them changed. They are the same. Did you see what a gracious, sweet, and holy temper they were in before? They are in it still. Thus are we to submit to the disposal of God in every condition. Contentment is the inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, freely submitting to and taking pleasure in God's disposal in every condition. That is the description, and in it nine distinct things have been opened up, which we summarize as follows. First, that contentment is a heart work within the soul. Secondly, it is the quieting of the heart. Thirdly, it is the frame of the spirit. Fourthly, it is a gracious frame. Fifthly, it is the free working of this gracious frame. Sixthly, there is in it a submission to God, sending the soul under God. Seventhly, there is a taking pleasure in the hand of God. Eighthly, all is traced to God's disposal. Ninthly, in every condition, however hard, it be, and however long it continue. Now those of you who have learned to be content have learned to attain to these various things. I hope that the very opening of these things may so far work on your hearts that you may lay your hands upon your hearts on what has been said. I say that the very telling you what the lesson is may cause you to lay your hands on your hearts and say, Lord, I see there is more to Christian contentment than I thought there was, and I have been far from learning this lesson. Indeed, I have only learned my ABC in this lesson of contentment. I am only in the lower form in Christ's school if I am in it at all. We shall speak of these things more later, but my particular aim in opening this point is to show what a great mystery there is in Christian contentment, and how many distinct lessons there are to be learned, that we may come to attain to this heavenly disposition to which St. Paul attained. 
the mystery of contentment. But you will object. What you speak of is very good if we could attain to it. But is it possible for anyone to attain to this? Is it possible if you get skill? It is possible if you get skill in the art of it, you may attain to it. And it will prove to be not such a difficult thing either, if you but understand the mystery of it. There are many things that men do in their callings, that if a countryman comes and sees, he thinks it a mighty hard thing, and that he should never be able to do it. But that is because he does not understand the art of it. There is a twist of the hand by which you may do it with ease. Now that is the business of this book, to open to you the art and mystery of contentment. There is a great mystery and art in what way a Christian comes to contentment, by what has been op already opened to you, there will appear some mystery and art, as that a man should be content with his affliction, and yet thoroughly sensible of his affliction too. To be thoroughly sensible of an affliction, and to endeavor to remove it by all lawful means, and yet to be content, there is a mystery in that. How to join these two together? to be sensible of an affliction, as much as a man or woman who is not content, I am sensible of it as fully as they are, and seek ways to be delivered from it as well as they, and yet still my heart abides content. This is, I say, a mystery that is very hard for a carnal heart to understand. But grace teaches such a mixture, teaches us how to make a mixture of sorrow and a mixture of joy together, and that makes contentment, the mingling of joy and sorrow, a gracious joy and gracious sorrow together. Grace teaches us how to moderate and to order an affliction, so that there shall be a sense of it, and yet for all that contentment under it. There are several things for opening the mystery of contentment. 1. The first thing is to show that there is a great mystery in it. It may be said of one who is contented in a Christian way that he is the most contented man in the world and yet the most unsatisfied man in the world. These two together must needs be mysterious. I say a contented man, just as he is the most contented, so he is the most unsatisfied man in the world. You never learned the mystery of contentment unless it may be said of you ju that just as you are the most contented man, so you are also the most unsatisfied man in the world. You will say, how is that? A man who has learned the art of contentment is the most contented with any low condition that he has in the world, and yet he cannot be satisfied with the enjoyment of all the world. He is contented if he has but a crust, 
but bread and water, that is, if God disposes of him for the things of the world, to have but bread and water for his present condition, he can be satisfied with God's disposal in that. Yet, if God should give unto him kingdoms and empires, all the world to rule, if he should give it him for his portion, he would not be satisfied with that. Here is the mystery of it. Though his heart is so enlarged that the enjoyment of all the world, ten thousand worlds, cannot satisfy him for his portion, yet he has a heart quieted under God's disposal, if he gives him but bread and water. To join these two together must needs be a great art and mystery. Though he is contented with God in a little, yet these things that would content other men will not content him. The men of the world seek after wealth, and think they, and think if they had thus much, and thus much, they would be content. They do not aim at great things, but if I had, perhaps some man thinks, only two or three hundred a year, then I should be well enough. If I had but a hundred a year, or a thousand a year, says another, then I should be satisfied. But a gracious heart says that if he had ten hundred thousand times so much a year, it would not satisfy him if he had the quintessence of all the excellences of all the creatures in the world, it could not satisfy him. And yet this man can sing and be merry and joyful when he has only a crust of bread and a little water in the world. Surely religion is a great mystery. Great is the mystery of godliness, not only in the doctrinal part of it, but in the practical part of it also. Godliness teaches us this mystery, not to be satisfied with all the world for our portion, and yet to be content with the meanest condition in which we are. When Luther was sent great gifts by dukes and princes, he refused them, and he says, I did vehemently protest that God should not put me off so, tis not that which will content me. A little in the world will content a Christian for his passage. Mark here lies the mystery of it. A little in the world will content a Christian for his passage, but all the world and ten thousand times more will not content a Christian for his portion. A carnal heart will be content with these things of the world for his portion, and that is the difference between a carnal heart and a gracious heart. But a gracious heart says, Lord, do with me what you will for my passage through the world. I will be content with that, but I cannot be content with all the world for my portion. So there is the mystery of true contentment. A contented man, though he is most contented with the least things in the world, yet he is the most dissatisfied man that lives in the world. A soul that is capable of God can be filled with nothing else but God. Nothing but God can fill a soul that is capable of God. Though a gracious heart knows that it is capable of God and was made for God, carnal hearts think 
without reference to God, but a gracious heart being enlarged to be capable of God and enjoying somewhat of him can be filled by nothing in the world. It must only be God himself. Therefore you will observe that whatever God may give you, that whatever God may give to a gracious heart, a heart that is godly, unless he gives himself, it will not do. A godly heart will not only have the mercy, but the mercy of that mercy as well, and then a little matter is enough in the world. So be it, he has the God of the mercy which he enjoys. In Philippians 4, 7 and 9, I need to go no further to show clear scripture for this. Compare verse 7 and verse 9. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. The peace of God shall keep your hearts. Then in verse 9, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you, the peace of God shall keep you, and the God of peace shall be with you. Here is what I would offer, sorry, here is what I would observe from this text, that the peace of God is not enough to a gracious heart except it may have the God of that peace. A carnal heart could be satisfied if he might but have outward peace, though it is not the peace of God. Peace in the state and his trading would satisfy him, but mark how a godly heart goes beyond a carnal. All outward peace is not enough. I must have the peace of God. But suppose you have the peace of God, will that not quiet you? No, I must have the God of peace. As the peace of God, so the God of peace. That is, I must enjoy that God who gives me the peace. I must have the cause as well as the effect. I must see from whence my peace comes, and enjoy the fountain of my peace, as well as the stream of my peace. And so, in other mercies, have I from ha, have I health from God? I must have the God of my health to be my portion, or else I am not satisfied. Is it not life? Sorry, it is not life, but the God of my life. It is not riches, but the God of those riches that I must have, the God of my preservation as well as my preservation. A gracious heart is not satisfied without this, to have the God of mercy, the mercy as well as the mercy. In Psalm seventy-three twenty-five, whom have I in heaven? A gracious heart is not satisfied without this, to have the God of the mercy as well as the mercy. In Psalm 73, 25, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. There is nothing in heaven or earth that can satisfy me but yourself. If God gave you not only earth but heaven, that you should rule over the sun, moon, and stars. 
and have the rule over the highest of the sons of men, it would not be enough to satisfy you unless you had God himself. There lies the first mystery of contentment, and truly a contented man, though he is the most contented man in the world, is the most dissatisfied man in the world. That is, those things that will satisfy the world will not satisfy him.